the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father. In the Lord Jesus, amen. To meditate on the gospel that is preached to you, as St. Peter says, to consider things which angels long into, long to look into. To meditate on the gospel is to do what is a unique privilege for you to do, that angels cannot even think about the way you are able to think about it. And this is what it means to ponder the grace of God. Thinking about God's word is a very rewarding thing to do, not least of which because God blesses the one who sets his mind on things above, as St. Paul tells us to. But how high above do we set our minds? St. Paul also warns us not to think of lofty things, but to associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Well, we set our minds on things above by keeping our minds focused on what is revealed below. We listen to the Bible, and we do so as lowly beggars. We don't let our minds try to delve into the mind of God by any other means than by listening to his word. And where our minds can delve no further, we stop. Lest the old adage prove true that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. When God doesn't tell us the answer we're looking for, we stop. Only a fool presumes to learn something about God which God himself has not disclosed. We fear God, knowing that his thoughts are higher than ours and that he has revealed all that is needful and sufficient for our salvation right there in the Bible. The Bible speaks to sinners in need of a Savior. It does not speak to skeptics who have put God on trial. Whoever approaches the Word of God as anything other than as a student in need of instruction and grace will lead himself into error. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The same godly fear that compels us to meditate on his word is the holy fear that considers our own limits and is content with what God says. When one tries to figure out what God in his wisdom has chosen to keep hidden from us, well, he falls into great danger. He puts God to the test. And since God doesn't reveal the answers that we may seek, people will look to their own minds to learn. They figure out what makes sense to them, and then they claim that God revealed it to them, or that it's their own interpretation of the Bible. Why some and not others? Now, there's a question people ask, and one I'd like to respond to today. Why are many called, but few are chosen? Who does God think he is? Well, he thinks he's God. And he knows the answer, but he won't answer the question because we don't need to know. He simply says, as he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have, on, have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. But this raises an objection in many minds. If God saves us by grace alone, why doesn't he save everyone? Isn't his grace for everyone? 
Does he choose to damn some? And if God only chooses some to be saved, what is it about us that made God choose us? Against these thoughts, we must affirm and defend two truths, no matter how difficult it is to balance them in your mind. One, whoever is damned is not chosen by God to be damned, but is lost by his own fault. And two, whoever is saved is not saved by some merit on his part, but is saved out of pure grace alone. Many are called, few are chosen, so says Jesus. That's what Jesus said. God chooses only few to be saved. From eternity, before creation itself, God chose for himself those who would be finally saved. This is what we call the doctrine of election. Election means to choose. To make sense of this, many have supposed that God must, therefore, also choose from eternity those he will damn. But this is not true. All fall short. God doesn't select anyone to be damned. He chooses from those who are already damned, whom he will save. Though few are chosen, the Bible tells us that God desires to save all. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 33. Peter writes, The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. St. Paul tells Timothy, God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. For all. The Bible teaches that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the whole world, through him, might be saved. God desires to save all. The reason some don't believe is not God's fault. God does not elect or choose anyone to be damned. He is not the author of evil. The devil is. The devil is the father of lies. The reason people do not believe is because they reject God's grace, not because God's grace was not for them. Jesus said right before he died on the cross as he wept over Jerusalem, how often I wanted, I willed, to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You didn't want. And the Bible says also today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now God hardens hearts that have already hardened themselves. That's what he did to Pharaoh. He didn't initiate it. It was punishment for his stubbornness. But Pharaoh's resistance was his own. It was a resistance we were born with. And if God is super abundantly gracious toward the hardness of our own hearts, will our eye be evil because his eye is good? God chooses no one before him to reject his mercy. That blame falls on the one who is condemned. Which leads us to the second concern. Some suppose that if the cause of one's damnation is not in God, no, but in man, which is true, this is true. Then, they suppose, the cause of salvation must also be in man. Really get God off the hook entirely. But this is false. It's false. If man's decision causes him to reject grace freely offered, 
People suppose that man's decision must also cause him to accept the grace freely offered. It's reasonable, but it's not true. All glory belongs to God alone. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This morning's theme is the grace of God. There's nothing more important for us to consider, ever, ever. Nothing is so marvelous and wonderful and beyond our understanding is the grace of God, and yet there is nothing that we need more and to understand clearly and not be budged from. So of all mysteries revealed in Holy Scripture, naturally nothing is more abused and twisted. The grace of God separates God's mind infinitely from our minds, and yet it invites us into his mind. Like like workers being invited into a vineyard. He tells us what to do, though, when we're in there. That's important. He tells us where to go and where to stop and where to come, what to leave and what to embrace and what to find. We live and operate in this world in a system of merit and reward. That's how we know, and Jesus is able to appeal to it, do I not have the right to do what I want with what is mine? We understand the concept of private property. He who does not work, neither shall he eat. We think this way, and our natural minds can't escape this way of thinking. But God doesn't think this way. We think in terms of what we can earn by our works. God doesn't think that. He thinks in terms of freely giving to undeserving creatures what they need. He thinks in terms of freely giving to undeserving sinners what we need, the merit and worthiness of Christ, whose work alone earns anything. Those who came into the vineyard first worked for wages. The wages were generous enough, standard terms of a day's wage, and they accepted the terms, but they had no thought that their calling was by grace. Why would they? So when those who came last received the same, they naturally assumed that their labor would be worth more. They didn't assume this by looking at their labor. They assumed this by judging the mercy of their master. They didn't understand grace. And because they didn't understand grace, they really didn't understand merit either. They got it into their heads based on despising God's grace that their labor was worth more than a day's wage. They didn't know where they began, and so they didn't know where they should finish. But they began as sinners in need, and so they would finish. All their work was just beating the air because they did their work for pay. But you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Paul says at the very beginning of Ephesians 2, which we'll return to in a second, that the call to work in the vineyard is not a calling of fit and coveted labors. It is a call of pure grace. It is a calling of of lazy and even dead laborers to work with strength that they don't naturally have. 
God didn't call you to faith because he thought you'd make such a good Christian. He called you to faith by pure mercy. So to attribute merit to our work is to deny the calling of the gospel. St. Paul writes in Galatians 3, Do not deceive, or did you not receive the spirit of the, by the works of the law? Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, will you now be made perfect by the flesh? Really? So having been called by pure grace, you're going to expect your works to earn salvation? Or does God call you by grace so that you may earn more grace? No. For to him who works, the wages aren't counted as grace, but as debt. Paul writes in Romans 4. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. To him who does not work, but it's not that he doesn't work, to be sure. But he doesn't count his work as the cause of God's grace. Oh, our works have value. We sing in the hymn, they have no worth, but this is only in relation to our salvation, to justification, right? But your works have great value to me, and our works have great value to one another, because we depend on each other, but you don't depend on yourself, you depend on Christ. Our works don't earn God's favor. Their value is found where our mutual value is found. We are accepted by God for Jesus' sake. And so, is anything we do accepted by God for Jesus' sake? Consider what St. Paul says just a few verses later in Ephesians 2, again, which I quoted. And this is one of our favorite passages. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not, that of, your, and not of yourselves. It is, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. God created us in Christ. He created us to rely on his grace even as we bear fruit. He doesn't call us to work because there's something lacking or unwilling in his grace. He doesn't call us to work so that we might produce something that earns our calling. He's not hungry for fruit that he needs from us. He desires it for our sake. He doesn't want us to be worthless, and he doesn't want us to feel worthless, and he doesn't want us to be worthless toward one another, and that's why he gave the most worthy gift that heaven and earth can't contain, his own eternal son to save us. What he wants is you. He wants to have you. So he gives something to you. He doesn't extract it. This is how God thinks. He's an ever-giving fountain of mercy. He calls us to good works because it is in doing good works that we both honor him and serve our neighbor whom he loves and we learn to love in him. And so it is also that we learn to love that which is good because we learn to love God. God good works are the fruit of faith, not the root. They please God because faith pleases God. And faith pleases God because it lays hold of the obedience of Christ who lived and died for you. God sent him to do that, his own son. 
to gain you. And God rewards whatever works you do by pure grace and their works that he himself has produced in you. God calls us to work so that we might not be idle. It's a sin to be idle. To be idle is to be not pondering God's word or invitation or grace. It's to have no faith. Physical or mental idleness will destroy a child. It'll melt your brain if you don't learn to think and pay attention. Spiritual idleness, however, can occur even when you're very busy and productive and industrious. Even when you're contributing to others and the economy and to needs at home by working hard. Spiritual idleness is to think of your own work instead of Christ's. And apart from faith, all works are nothing but idle thumb twiddling before God. And they give no peace to your conscience. And you know that. You know it. Because God has told you and he's permitted your experience to confirm it. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. An idle mind is the devil's home. But God calls us to be his workmanship. And he calls us to labor in his vineyard. Not to earn something, but because we are set free from dead works of darkness and are able now to rejoice in the works of God. But one who gives no thought to doing good, why? One who gives no thought to resisting his flesh, denying his appetite and serving. Well, he gives equally little thought to the good that God has done for him. On the same note, he who puts his trust in the good he does, even if he boasts of how God has called him to do it, such a one has rejected the good that God has done for him. That's what happened to those who were called first. They became last. They were working for wages. They despised those who were called last because their work was easy. Not because their work was hard, but because their work was easy. The first did their work under a heavy burden and a hot sun. They despised the work God called them, but they did it. They endured it for the reward they agreed to. They thought that the master's goodness to those who worked the easiest meant that they had earned more. But they despised him for his goodness, and their burden was heavy because they were working for pay. The sun was hot because they worked under the demands of the law and not under the shade of God's mercy. But you are under the shade of God's mercy. The doctrine of election is a doctrine of the gospel, not the law. It isn't a doctrine to satisfy the inquisitive mind or to take God off the hot seat. It's a doctrine for you so that you might see the intensity and surety of God's love for you. So far he removes it from your own labor and he removes it from your own labor, from your own commitment. He removes it and he puts it into his own heart and his own mind from eternity so that you might always find it in Christ and never find it in yourself. And it gives us a glimpse, this pure doctrine of election, a glimpse that angels desire to see of God's heart that is abounding in steadfast love for sinners. There is no capriciousness in our Father's heart. Never does God speak of choosing anyone except by grace. 
Never does God give his reason for choosing you as anything other than what Christ has done and completed. So if you lack good works, if you see sin and pride and laziness in yourself, if you're tempted to wonder whether God's choice for you is sure, you are invited to ponder God's word. Consider his invitation. Where else than your call will you find his choice? Gaze into your Father's heart in no other way than by seeing where the angels hover, where his Son earns your salvation on the cross and gives you the fruit of his labor in the sacrament. Repent of your sin. Turn from the desire to judge others or to fulfill lust or to doubt God's willingness to fulfill whatever desire you have that he is still making you wait to receive. Repent of not doing what God called you to do. See what Christ bore on the cross and see God take that penalty and punishment away from you, away from the whole world. And where does he, and where he does this for the whole world, you see there confirmed that he did it for you. And there you see his choice as you hear it. You see in Christ who bore your sin, the heart of your Father, who made you and provides you and loves you and gives you all you need for free. He does not offer this without meaning it. Remember that the sin in your heart is not proof of God's rejection but proof of your need. And whom does he call to work? He calls sinners. You will not find God's choice for you in your own work, but in the work of Jesus for you. But dear brothers and sisters, we have work to do. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, Christ is all in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing one with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. This is our work. The same power you have to know yourself as God's elect is the power you have to live and work as God's elect. Christ forgave you. What is in the mind of God? God forgave you. Am I good enough? Christ forgave you. Has God chosen me? Christ forgave you. Have I done enough? Have I loved enough? Have I given enough? Silence with these nagging questions. Silence with all of these questions for you are not doubting yourself but God and you don't find the work you need to do and accomplish by looking at yourself but by looking to Christ. Tread where angels rejoice to see you tread, not where they fear to go. Step into the daylight splendor and learn to give praise to him who counts nothing against you, even now, but who gave his son to do what you couldn't to love the unlovable, to give everything to those who had nothing and to, get, to give great and wonderful works to do to those who were dead. Find your life in him who rose. Find your work in those things that confess his mercy and that serve his brethren. And find your reward in what you have already received. And enjoy it. Enjoy it under the shade of an evening sky. 
knowing that your race is almost run. God's choice for you is found in Jesus, your Savior. The works he has prepared for you are works that begin with knowing this. Your sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.